The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, hello, and welcome to everybody to the October. October Art Science Reading Group. Uh, from wherever you're joining us, you are very, very welcome. A um, couple things are a little bit different uh, this time around. First of all, that intro music, um, that was my choice. And from now on, we're going to be mixing it up. Next time's Amelia's choice. So tune in if for no other reason than to see what fabulous grooves we choose to bring you into our mixed uh, interdisciplinary art science world. So you're very welcome. Um, today, we're going to be talking to three uh, experts in their various fields from GBHI. I'll let them introduce what GBHI is and what they are experts in, but a little housekeeping before we begin. So, my name is Autumn Brown. I am a, an interdisciplinary researcher at Science Gallery Dublin and Trinity College Dublin. Um, I am the co-host and co-founder of the Art Science Reading Group, joined by my fabulous co-founder and partner in crime, Miss Amelia McConville, who is also an interdisciplinary researcher at uh, Trinity College Dublin. As we are talking to our experts, we want you guys to feel invited to comment, ask questions in the chat, we're just going to be kicking this off, but eventually we're going to turn to our audience and it'll be up to you guys to ask whatever questions and engage with Sarah, Francesca and Grania um, as you like. And these guys are here to talk to you and to share their work with you guys. So please don't be shy. Do pop your questions in the Q&A or the chat function and Emily and I will turn to you guys about halfway through. And so without further ado, I will introduce uh, Miss Amelia McConville, my co-host. Thank you so much, Autumn, for a fantastic introduction. Um, and thank you to everyone for joining us. Uh, thank you especially to our panelists. Um, we're really excited for this conversation tonight and to see how, uh, how the conversation unfolds over the course of our hour together. Um, just want to say, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm Amelia as well, as Autumn has introduced me. I'm an interdisciplinary researcher looking at poetry studies and neurohumanities um, together. Um, and before I pass over to the, the uh, Atlantic Fellows to introduce themselves, I just want to say thank you so much to Science Gallery Dublin and to Trinity Longroom Hub for their ongoing support um, without which those two institutions we, we, could, we wouldn't be able to do this. So thank you very much for that. Um, and yeah, considering that we have a panel of, of three people here tonight, I, myself and Autumn for once are going to talk a little bit less um, in this particular webinar um, and session. So I'm delighted to pass over to uh, Francesca, Gronia and Sarah to introduce themselves um, as our GBHI Atlantic Fellows. Hi everybody. Um, so just first of all to say thank you so much to Autumn and Amelia for the invitation. I'm a long time listener, first time panellist, so this is very exciting for me. And thank you to Autumn. I don't think I've ever had better introduction music, so that was great. Um, I'm a neuroscientist, neuroscience researcher. Um, before GBHI, I was based in Trinity uh, in the Institute of Neuroscience, and my work focuses on early detection um, and risk factors for dementia. And more broadly, I'm really interested in, in all of these areas of brain health and also creative collaboration. So I work with a lot of artists, musicians, poets um, on community engagement projects. So I'm delighted to be here and I'm going to pass to Sarah to introduce herself. Hi 
Okay, thank you, Francesca, and thank you for inviting me to join you guys today. Um, not been to one of these events before, so hopefully um, it's going to be brilliant, and I'm definitely going to be coming to some more in the future. Um, so yeah, I'm also a fellow with the Global Brain Health Institute. Um, like Francesca, I have a neuroscience background, also looking in early stage diagnostics. Um, I think it's really amazing how small neuroscience can be that we found out when we first met and chatted that we share supervisors. My PhD supervisor was Francesca's external examiner because we were doing such similar projects. Um, but basically you couldn't keep me in a lab. Uh, there were no windows in most of them and this smelled like mouse pee. So uh, I spent a lot of my time reaching out and talking to people. I come from a non-technical family, first scientist in the family. So I really loved communicating what I was doing and why I was doing it. So find myself now in patient public involvement and engagement, helping people take part and play an active role in developing uh, research. So that's me, pass it over to Gronje. Hi, thank you, Sarah, for passing over. I'm delighted to be here. It's my first of such a panel. I normally have the cello with me. The ladies beforehand were saying, please play a piece, maybe next time. Um, so yeah, professional music has brought me all around the world, recording with many wonderful artists and um, uh, playing with the RT Concert Orchestra Irish National Opera. But the seed was sown as a graduate student in America, where we had the opportunity to do a performance in a healthcare setting. And it just transformed my idea of what I could do with music, how I could help people and how I could share music. That's so the seed of an organization that is now Kids Classics. We're 10 years old, but the name belies the breadth of work we do. So we go all through the spectrum from, from young children and into, into the hearts of uh, nursing homes and hospitals. Um, and with that now we support um, and provide training and mentoring for other professional musicians that would like to bring music into healthcare. So I'm delighted to be here today and offer my, share my experience. Amazing. Thank you all so much for joining us. Yeah, um, wonderful. I think we want to start off with um, a little bit of, of, of uh, background context to ground us um, in what exactly GBHI is and what exactly um, the Atlantic Fellowships are and what are our Atlantic Fellows? How can they claim to, to be Fellows in, in the way that, that they are? Um, so I think Francesca was going to very kindly give us a quick introduction to GBHI and Atlantic Fellows for those of us who might not be familiar. Thanks, Amelia. So GBHI is the Global Brain Health Institute. Um, it's an organization that really recognizes the interdisciplinary approach that we need to take to brain health. Um, so we are an organization that are full of not just scientists and artists, but also, uh, you know, economists, um, doctors. It's, it's really, it's such a broad spectrum. And then GBHI itself is one of seven programs that's part of the Atlantic Fellows program. So we, we focus on brain health in GBHI, but the other programs will focus on um, racial equity, economic equity, equity, and health equity more broadly. So the overarching, I guess, um, theme would be equity. That's amazing. And we'll definitely get to, before we turn to questions, talking about brain health and equity and what that means within the context of neuroscience and having a healthy brain. But before we get there, um, the breadth of what you guys do professionally and what your expertises are in is pretty broad. Um, so I guess one of the things that we wanted to kind of start with is how do you manage to collaborate with one another? How do you collaborate with people who are outside of your field and navigate those differences um, in practice? I'll jump in there and say um, 
from my perspective, it was almost the easiest and most natural and most enjoyable part of the work that I was doing as an academic researcher. And I don't know whether that's partially because of my background. So I was one of those kids who was really torn between the arts and the sciences at school. I was almost going to go to art college and then, you know, the standard parents oh, I think, you know, science might be the better path for you. So I ended up as a scientist, but I've always loved art. And I've always been the kind of person who'll go home and be sketching and doodling and doing various stuff also during lectures. Um, so for me, it felt very natural. Uh, I've made so many new friends doing this as well. And I just think also if people see science as this kind of black and white discipline sometimes. It's like, you know, at school, you read it out of textbooks and it's almost dogmatic. Um, but actually being within the field, you need that level of creativity because you're working on the on the edges of human understanding. We don't know a lot of this stuff. That's why we're researching it. So you kind of need to be creative and bring all these strands together in a in a different way. So yeah, for me, I, I found it quite natural, but I think not everyone does. So. <laughs> I totally agree with Sarah. I mean, it seemed the most natural thing joining this cohort. Um, and and it's been so wonderful and I think you're so right um, people think of scientists as very like regimented unimaginative people but I think it's really far from the truth and I think what we all have in common is that kind of curiosity um, and also things like openness and adaptability so anyone who works in the sciences know that like so many of your experiments are going to fail you know <laughs> so what you set out to do it's not going to work you're going to have to try other things and I think that sort of active and alive process is something that would also be very familiar to artists and musicians as well. So I think accepting or maybe jumping into that unknown space is something that is really shared amongst everybody in GBHI and, and um, across the arts and sciences and, and the whole spectrum. I, I jump in, Francesca, I couldn't agree more. I suppose as a musician, my whole career has been built been based on collaboration with others and partnering with others in making music and not just with musicians but for people and I suppose um, in bringing we were having a conversation yesterday uh, amongst us and we were talking about yeah but what science I'm like I don't I, I play music I, what's that got to do with science but it was just an interesting one and they both you bring arts and music into healthcare setting you know and then that just and I just I never I just saw it as doing what well you collaborate with people you you partner you bring in you know music into settings and I suppose one of the key things for me is an open communication with people and um, so that you really I suppose you're explaining with a setting or something the role of that music can have in a setting both on the setting and in the, in the individual and the intention of me being a musician in hospital so I'm not a music therapist but what we're doing is a cultural engagement and hopefully uh, it's a really a collaboration and partnership with everybody there so with that it's it's yeah the key is the collaborative element of it and I think for me it's it's a natural it's a natural step thanks to everyone for those wonderful answers this is getting us off to a flying start um, a question that we're, we're quite keen to ask you guys as well. Oh, sorry, Francesca, are you going to jump sorry, in? Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. Sorry. Do you no, mind if I just add one quick thing to that? Because I think it's something that we've talked about as well is like just, and Grania touched on it, was language. And so, and like the, the framing, right? So oftentimes we'll be talking about the same thing. We're just saying it in different ways. And I think that, that finding that common language is such an important 
aspect, I guess, of how we collaborate or how, how it works in GBHI as well. I think it's having those initial conversations and then you eventually get around to like, oh, we're, we're talking about the same thing or, you know, this applies in the same way. It's just about finding that kind of common, common way of saying it or common language. Thank you so much, Francesca. That's actually a really good segue, I think, into um, the next question that I have for you guys um, for our panel, um, which is quite a broad question, but I'm hoping that each of you guys will answer it in relation to your primary field um, and in relation to how your primary field can relate to the other disciplines that you're combining with within the context of um, the Atlantic Fellows and GBHI. Um, so that question is, what is the value of an art science collaboration within your field? Um, so yeah, more broadly, what can happen when art and science can come together? Um, in your field? Uh, so since I went first last time, I'll jump in again. Um, so working in patient public involvement, basically this is more than people participating in research. This is people being co-researchers, actually being involved from the ground up and developing and helping us shape projects. And uh, interesting research, still relatively early days. So this is a relatively early field in the UK. Um, but it seems like um, people who are involved in their own healthcare and who take this active role tend to have better clinical outcomes. So actually overall, you know, playing this active role is helping to kind of democratize things and to make sure that people are playing that active part. But I think you really have to be creative about the way you do that. I think often we'll think about, well, okay, we'll just write a paper or okay, you know, scientists might just have a panel and we'll just stand and talk to people. But I think there'll be a lot of individuals who might sit there and say, oh, okay, and maybe they're not confident enough to speak up and say, oh, I'm not so sure about that. So I think when it comes to this communication, uh, the collaboration is so important to find out how to put that across properly. So a little bit of work I've done recently with patients living with a dementia was using poetry to put across um, different concepts uh, of research topics. And this was something very experimental from my part. Um, I know there's a lot of research in people who aren't so fluent and aren't quite able to communicate, in, uh, you know, simply. And they find that actually poetry really helps these people come out their shells. It helps that kind of communication. So I thought, well, how if we, what happens if we merge this with patient public involvement and had a really uh, great event where, you know, people all came together. And it was also great that we we're all outside our comfort zone. So the scientists and academics who were there weren't poets either. So we we're all put in this kind of failure free space where we were just being creative and playing with the concepts. We had images of brains with amyloid pathology and plaques in there. And yeah, it was just really interesting. So I'm happy to jump in. So I didn't want to stand on for just a few seconds delay. Um, I suppose for me as an artist and a musician, um, what science brings to the equation, it, it's able to help me capture um, and record and document the impact that music can have, um, I suppose. And that in turn helps me with the narrative of the story of the reason why you, why you, um, people might like to get on board with this and, and in a way unlock more funding because you know it's great doing a little project, you know, and I don't mean little, but a project that is a finite date. But if we are to really impact, change, cause change for long term, funding needs to come for that to pay the artists and to pay the, you know, to pay a program to to continue on. So I suppose for me, um, the value of is, is is just it can't even be put into numbers of bringing the science together to help me as a musician to do that, and I suppose affect change and support longer lives better lived. 
there's so much evidence now around um, the power of music to connect uh, connect with people, especially with dementia, you know, where memories are linked with emotions and in turn with a musical song. And I can see that as a musician playing, you see how somebody reacts either through an emotion or a behavior. Um, and that's my word, I can see it, but it's how do I capture that? How do I put that down and make a case for future policy or future fu funding? Because um, um, as we say, the arts can support people with longer lives better lived. And to pick up on that, I think, you know, I'm coming from the opposite end, I suppose. So from my perspective, I need people like Grania who have that, that on the ground experience so that when I represent numbers or data, that means something, that it's not just a data point, it's there's, there's somebody behind that. And so I think for me, you know, the value of, of art science collaboration is like it's it's necessary dementia something like dementia is not going to be solved by one particular approach by one person somewhere you know and it kind of reminds me of um the uh this sort of uh theory by brian eno who talks about like how he hates genius and the word genius because it kind of makes it seem like you know this person just arrived and they were glorious whereas in actual fact you know these people who are considered geniuses usually had very fertile ground to grow in. And he came up with senius, which is not from the genes, but from the scene that somebody is, is working in. And, you know, he talks about different examples of that, like people like Leonardo da Vinci, you know, who was living in Renaissance times and, and how that really led to now, I guess, what, you know, he, he's considered this sort of genius. And so I think that's kind of what GBHI is right so the idea that we're all coming at this with a shared goal um, we all mutually respect each other and respect what each other does there's a safe space to be creative but everybody can contributes a piece of that and i suppose that's what i see as the value and i i think more than that it's it's absolutely necessary if we are to tackle things like health equity and brain equity Absolutely. Thank you so much for those, those incredible answers, um, everybody. And even just, just coming off the back of what you said there, Francesca, I mean, and, and looping back to, I think, what Sarah said about this idea of a failure-free space. And I think that notion is so incredible and so important um, because, something, you know, as, as an art and science researcher myself, like something I often come up against is this idea that within the arts and the humanities, um, Arts, arts are sort of, particularly creative arts, are, are not allowed to fail in the same way that science does. So failure is sort of trial and error is sort of is a, is a given within scientific experimentation. You can have a successful experiment that proves that something wasn't the case. Whereas in art, no one really puts on an exhibition of an artist's failed works or the works that, that doesn't quite get there. So I think it's incredible, again, just to come back to GBHI to the space where actually both of those, those, um, those aspects are, are able to be celebrated, the success and the failure. And actually there's no such thing as failure, but yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'll pass over to Autumn now. For the yeah, next. I was going to say each one of you touched on something that was really fascinating. So, um, Sarah, I love this idea of working with poetry um, and science. We've spoken about a mutual friend, Sam Illingworth, who's just a phenomenal person who has done a lot of research into where science and poetry meet. And there's some extraordinary technologists, engineers from history who 
included art as part of their scientific practice to help them ask better questions, to help them explore subjects. And, and Grania, I think a lot of times as interdisciplinary researchers who are trying to bridge the gap between art and science or between technology and science, we often have in the back of our minds that we are kind of struggling with funding. And um, we, it's, it's, um, it's a constant, I wouldn't say insecurity, I would say a fear that you're not going to be able to communicate what it is that you do to the scientists or the artists, that by straddling both, you are not, not able to satisfy either. So to hear from an artist the kind of hope about funding and how much that's on your mind is really, really exciting. Um, and Francesca, just, I think, everything you've said has been really, really exciting. But the last thing that you touched on, on this idea of brain, brain health and equity and what that looks like within your field and how each one of you kind of bring this to the forefront of your practice and what you do. I'd love to hear more about what brain health and equity have to do with one another. What, is that, what does that mean within each one of your kind of fields and lives? <laughs> I'll jump in again. <laughs> um, so I recommend you listen to um, a podcast that we're going to be on, which is being released on Monday on Near FM, where we're actually discussing the concept of brain health and what this actually is. And actually a very sticky and interesting concept to talk about. Um, I definitely know that when I was lab based, uh, it was something that we just really didn't discuss. Um, we talked a lot about disease. Uh, we talked about disease models but we didn't really say as much about brain health. However, when I moved out into the community, it was much more of a buzzword. It was something that, you know, I went to brain health events. And what was really interesting is chatting to members of the public saying that actually we don't want to hear about disease. Of course, yes, you know, you have X amount of risk factors that you might get dementia or you might get, but what we really want to know is how do you keep your brain healthy? Um, so I think actually brain health is important and as a concept it's something that straddles the whole of your lifespan right so it starts very young and brain health is around education as well there's a really brilliant paper which I think maybe we could share around later from the Lancet with a lovely diagram actually which puts it beautifully about how different risk factors affect you at different stages of your life um, and a lot of those uh, will be linked to equity. They will be linked to people's socioeconomic status, to the, the kind of, you know, their, how they live their life. Um, so I think the understanding of it is really important. And it's so important to get out there what brain health can be and how people can improve their brain health, but also to give them those facilities because knowing that education is important maybe isn't enough to make that a practicality for most people so i think we need to understand it people need to know about it but we also need to have policies we need to make sure this can actually happen in the real world i'm happy to jump in next i um i suppose it was said today um you know the brain has a function but we as individuals we are responsible for our own health and when I started with um, bringing music into, into healthcare settings, I was looking at it more in well-being. But well-being is part of, of brain health. And I suppose the, the seed was sown with um, the organization set up uh, with Case Classics. And the whole reason was to bring the high quality uh, performance uh, opportunities for, by professional musicians off 
a concert stage and into the communities to provide equal access to everybody, regardless of economic, medical or, or social circumstances. And that's what sowed the seed for the work that I now do. So whether it's in a Deshwan school or whether it's in a library or community centre school or a nursing home or an ICU ward, it's about giving people the option to engage in a, in a, cult a cultural interaction. And I suppose with that, comes well-being and, and, and comes better brain health. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, it's not surprising that we're just agreeing with each other, <laughs> but no, I do. And I think, again, that same talk, uh, so we had a great talk today in GBHI from Ronan Conway, who's um, head of data science in RCSI. And he said a lot of great things. And one thing he said was, um, brain health is what matters to you not what's the matter with you and I really liked that and it really stuck with me you know and it gets to that piece of you know brain health can be many different things to many different people and it's not just a case of what's going on in your brain so we know from the neuroscience that you can have all the hallmark signs of pathology of, of dementia in your brain so the proteins and stuff but you may not exhibit any of the symptoms of dementia and so it's not a one-to-one -one relationship between things like genes. And, and as Sarah mentioned, there's lots of lifestyle factors that will come into that. And some of the biggest lifestyle factors are things like well-being, engagement, sense of purpose, you know, which is particularly hard now, especially in COVID times, when we're all kind of stuck in our little boxes, um, our COVID caves, as you say, Autumn. <laughs> And I think, yeah, brain health is, 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 is just is so much more than that. And, and as, as Sarah said as well, it's the continuum. It's a lifelong process. It's not a process of like the haves and the have nots. You can always do something good for your brain health that it's not, yeah, it's not fixed. I, I think they're all amazing points um, that our panel are making. I might, I might just expand, push you both, push you all a little bit further on on, um, on that particular question, and and ask, yeah, like, I mean, how has the nature of of the pandemic and the COVID nineteen times that we find ourselves in, um, maybe you could comment a little bit on how uh, the specific, that maybe the unprecedented nature of the times we're now living in, how has that uh, impacted your work with GBHI or your work as fellows, or maybe just your individual work? Maybe our panel could comment. I'm happy to to jump in here. Um, I suppose a lot of my work has had to be reimagined in the virtual realm. Um, as a musician, I think the last concert I played was in the beginning of March. Um, so, um, and, but then thinking back at the core of what I do, it's like it's about connecting with people. Um, I didn't realise how privileged I was then to have recording engineers and everybody else to look after the sound, and now I have to deal with that. So it's been a huge huge learning curve. Um, you know, with technologies, etc. Um, but certainly, say, for instance, our music in, in nursing home called Musical Memories. And um, what we do now is trying to get that person centeredness into the practice. So we I sat with all the musicians and we created a framework of what best practice looks like on, on the virtual uh, uh, space. I mean, one of our key things was should the standards and what we do be any different because it's on the virtual space and how can we get it will be of course different to that you can't replace you know live in person but how can we get as close as possible so we've been looking at especially with someone dementia you know it's hard to engage with the screen for most of us anyway with zoom all day but you know it's like it's a small little ipad or phone in front of somebody so even to, to realize the song is coming from there the volume level there's you know the older population you know they have sight issues and hearing loss so you know we've had to work with um technology and um 
it's been quite more successful than I thought it'd ever be. There's been lots of failures, so I'm happy to admit them. Um, but it's, it's certainly, it's, I think it's been a wonderful opportunity. I think when something like COVID happened, it gave us a chance to stand back and certainly me to look at what I was doing, why I was doing it, what were the key elements, and just to think, and certainly, certainly some of the space in the virtual it will continue for us after COVID when we get back to in-person, because there will always be people who are immune suppressed, or, you know, after, you know, we do a lot of work in the children's hospitals who just, you can't have direct access to them because of their, their treatment needs. So this provides an opportunity again for equal access for as many people as possible. So certainly it has, and we're continuing to reimagine it. And um, we're in 14 settings in Ireland. So it's, 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 going back to that start, it's about collaboration and communication and partnership. And I would say it's about asking the people we connect with um, what it is they want. Um, it's not about just us putting something out there. So it's an ongoing conversation, but it has surprised me beyond belief. Um, and I'm, I, it, I'm sad to say it, but I'm, I look forward to the next couple of months and just seeing where it takes me. I think I've always been a person glass half full and I see this as an opportunity to, to advance uh, the practice and to see where we can really take music and how we can help people. Oh, thanks so much, Gordy. I feel like you've managed to, to do that, that, that great task that we're all trying to achieve, which is to find the silver lining of the pandemic. And it's, it's lovely to, to have such an optimistic slant on things. I completely agree. Um, Sarah and Francesca, do either of you want to comment on how the pandemic's impacted your work? Yeah, I, I would love to. But I just also want to say that Grania and another one of the fellows, <clears throat> sorry, Suzanne, have um, reimagined and adapted the GBHI space. And we're all in a band now together, a virtual band called Grey Matters. Um, so I think you're successful in all fronts, Grania, in that way. <laughs> so we're having our first rehearsal soon. But I guess that's one of the ways that, for, you know, GBHI is trying to adapt or we're trying to adapt as the fellows to try to find these opportunities to engage and collaborate because Zoom, you know, we're lacking that spontaneity of like the chats at the coffee machine or whatever, you know, the little walk outside or these kinds of moments with that kind of spark ideas. So coming up with those, I, those opportunities has been challenging I think but it's an interesting challenge and it's an exciting challenge and I think Grey Matters is a great example of that. <laughs> One of the other things I wanted to mention just about poetry and what we were talking about before, one of the things that um, I thought about early on in the pandemic was the kind of you know that that isolation piece with older people and especially older people being quite singled out as a group of like cocooners and they have to cocoon and they have to stay in and sort of what that mean so um i started a project with neuroscience ireland and poetry ireland where mm -hmm. we've all come together and we're doing a national poemathon for older people so we're asking people to submit one line of poetry as part of a kind of reflection and a kind of um i see it as a bit of a time capsule so to kind of take the pulse of people right now while this is happening and then all of that is going to be put together into one poem by a professional editor, not me, by an actual poet, um, a brilliant poet, Seamus Cashman. Um, and then that will be shared out. And really excitingly, we're working with um, John Sheehan from the Dubliners for this project. So John is going to provide the first and the last lines of the poem. So I guess similar to Grania, it's made me think about not just the research I do, but what, how can I engage with people that I wouldn't normally have done. And now I have this new collaboration with Poetry Ireland that never would have happened if we weren't all sitting in and thinking about, ooh, how, could I, how can I reach people when everyone's stuck inside and stuck at home? 
This is incredible. So, oh yeah, Sarah, after you answer, then we'll go to the, the Q&A because I see it's kind of kicking off. So I want to make sure we get to those questions, Ooh, but do go. Exciting. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I mean, just, just to quickly jump in, I, I, it's, I agree that it's, it's been a huge change for me. Um, most of my work, so I work in Greater Manchester in the UK, and most of my work was traveling to community groups, uh, to different memory assessment teams and to researchers. And I travel across the whole of Greater Manchester, just making connections and helping people out in that way. And it has changed that world quite significantly. Um, one of the last pieces of work I did before I took up the fellowship and joined the team here was just surveying all the dementia support groups that exist across Greater Manchester to work out how they've been coping with everything. And although, of course, there's, there are a lot of problems um, because we, we can't ignore that this has really changed the lives of so many carers and people living with um, dementia and the fact that people do have gone downhill a little bit and life has been a lot harder. I mean, loneliness is a big factor when it comes to dementia. Um, but uh, to put the positive slant on it, some of the groups that I've been speaking to, and again, music groups uh, are a big one here, have done such amazing things to bring everyone together and to try and help people get online. So from actually buying people devices to help them get online, to putting together activity packs, making sure volunteers are there to make regular phone calls. Um, I think it's been absolutely amazing how this has mobilized people to just kind of think about what's going on and to help support people. Um, and just looking to the future as well, I think it's highlighted so many concerns with dementia uh, care and with support for carers that were already there, but it's just brought them to the forefront. So I'd like to think that now we know more about this, maybe actually we can build back better. We can make a better future for people now that we know what the problems are. Sorry for the Greater Manchester slogan there, if anyone recognized it. But. <laughs> We'll have like two people from Manchester who are like, yes! <laughs> so that was for you guys. Um, and for anybody else who hasn't been to Manchester, check it out. It's a really fun place. Um, let's go ahead and turn to the questions. Um, our audience have been popping in some amazing questions for you guys. So we'll start with Sarah Durkin, who is from Science Gallery. So little plug there. Hey, Sarah. Uh, wondering about brain health of artists at the moment, particularly with the impact of this current moment of cultural and economic trauma and the psychological impact of trauma on artists and their ability to create. Are there any research insights into this area? I feel like it's something I should be able to answer, but I'm not the scientist that might have done the research. But I can, certainly it would be a fascinating, I'd say after COVID there will be a lot more, because as with any, pop, any, any body of population in the cur current time with COVID, it has been affected. And I know a lot of colleagues have said they found it very hard to create, to write music. And they had to step back for a while and just, just be, just allow themselves to, to, to feel the, the challenges that come with COVID like anybody else. But at the start, I know a lot were being asked, oh, you know, put music online, do this. But they just, they couldn't feel like they could even put a bow to the string. They just were, you know, like everybody else, it was a trauma. Um, and I, certainly it's, it's made us think as, I think in the training of artists, what resilience looks like. Um, I think artists generally are quite adaptive but it you know and different things in your life can add to the strains 
of you know a trauma like COVID. So it's certainly there's First Music Contact, I believe, and a few other organisations. The Arts Council are coming out and offering services and provisions to to support the mental health of artists, which is wonderful. It hadn't been there for a while, so they can they can avail of those services. So it's um, and I've no doubt somebody somewhere has started some research on this. And if I find out, I'll let you know. Wonderful. Do, do either uh, Sarah or Francesca want to respond to the question as well? I mean, I feel like I, I can't uh, respond from the point of view of an artist or technically professionally. Um, a colleague of mine did share an article in Psychiatric Times recently about um, trauma and how that's impacting so many people at the moment. And I really think we're not going to know the full extent of what's been going on definitely from a mental health perspective uh from so, of so many of us to be honest uh for many years to be fair um but yeah i, I know definitely from my perspective and so many people it, it has been challenging we, we we're all we all smile and we also we are finding ways around it and we are we're doing you know we are can be amazingly resilient but it's not easy and i think we do recognize that this has been a very tough time for so many of us and we are doing a great job but they're probably will be need to support people further and again it's another infrastructure change going forward to make sure that people have that support when we see the other end of this i might um jump off the back of what you just said there sarah and and uh, combine two questions that are are in the uh, the q a section um and maybe i might direct this you know i'll direct you to the panel but perhaps um francesca and maybe sarah might, might be able to weigh in a little bit more conclusively um no offense Grania, <laughs> but um i'm basically i'm looking at these two questions here so we've one from lisa doyle um who asked the question that i think gets asked quite a lot um in dementia research and um, which is that is there any evidence that a consistent engagement with the arts i.e music or poetry in the early stages of dementia can slow the development of the disease so that's our first question um, but Robert Brown also asks, related to the dementia and depression rates since COVID-19, have you noticed an increase in occurrence during the past eight months, maybe from a clinical setting uh, or, or perhaps in your, your research, Francesca, have you noticed a, a spike? Is that something you look for? Yeah, two, two really great questions. Um, so let's see, the first one, is there evidence that kind of creative engagement, I suppose, can help to stave off the negative sort of or cognitive decline, I guess? Um, I'm not sure about the specifics as in, you know, like a specific paper about poetry or about a type of music, but we know that social engagement is, uh, you know, so protective against um, many things, not, you know, it keeps our brains healthy, but is also great for our mental health. So that kind of social engagement and sense of purpose and community are all really important for kind of keeping our brains healthy but as to specifics i'm not sure if you have something sarah um and then the other question was a change in the incidence of dementia which i'm not actually sure of but i know unfortunately that statistics are coming out showing that there have been a lot more mortalities obviously in care homes um, and in many many settings so the um death rates are much higher than obviously what they normally would be so people at earlier stages and I think again this goes back to how we are you know what the normal the normal care home setting is and I think that's problematic in lots of ways and now this is an opportunity to address that long-standing issue I know specifically in Ireland and I'm sure the UK is quite similar as well um, but I think it's yeah it's definitely an opportunity to finally address some of these really long-standing 
issues. For example, I work with a lot of like carers and respite for carers is something that's difficult in the best of times. But now in COVID, you know, people will say to me, you know, how do I keep my loved one inside? I know they need to stay in, but like they do, they just want to go outside and, and that person is feeling quite cut off and quite lonely. So there's a lot of research coming out. I think, um, uh, as Sarah said as well, we're kind of really only in the middle of this. And I think in the coming months, we're going to hear a lot more coming out of the long-term effects, even to answer that question about the artists. I think, again, we're going to be seeing more and more of that. What are the knock-on effects for people? Yeah, I mean, not, not a lot to add to that. I mean, around the idea of a spike, the one thing that was noticed, again, two great questions, um, one thing that was noticed here in Greater Manchester, and I think this is probably going to be everywhere, is that a lot of memory assessment services kind of had to close their doors and had to stop practice. So if anything, there's been a dip in diagnosis, um, which in itself is quite worrying because often access to services and support come alongside uh, getting an official diagnosis. So there's been a lot of talk around here about increasing support and ensuring that people even who don't have a diagnosis but then themselves feel like they're having memory problems um, can receive some kind of support in that sense. Um, when it comes to um, what's happening in the brain, um, the one thing I'd say about like arts and being able to interact uh, in kind of very creative ways is another thing that I think maybe reduces your risk a little bit for dementia is something called cognitive reserve and again I'd say this is a really slippery term as well it's something that I would find it very difficult to define and I don't know again whether Francesca could jump and knows a little bit more about this because I've been out the uh, the academic field for quite a while but this is basically like the adaptability of your brain and so many factors lead into that but I think creativity and like Francesca was saying about being able to be social being able to kind of have that communication like we're having here having awkward questions thrown at you and having to think on your feet and answer them so that kind of interaction and that's what you get with these support groups and also through this kind of you know that kind of creativity so yeah okay very good um we'll keep rolling through so mary rafferty has asked a question here as well in the chat she says COVID-19 has revealed the huge inequalities in health and health outcomes in many societies. Are differences in brain health also unequal? And how can these systematic differences be addressed long term? So both of you have kind of just touched on this um, in the last questions a little bit, but I'd love to hear more. Um, so thanks, Mary. Yeah. Great question, Mary. I mean, I could I could talk about this forever. So, and I'm sure you know, Grani and Sarah would be the same. Absolutely, these these differences are there too. I mean, you know, we all worry about like genetic risk or you know your genetic code and how that affects your brain health. But I think a lot of people would also talk about another code that's very um, uh, that's a really strong determinant of your brain health, and that's like your zip code. So where you live and the services that are available to you from such a young age make such a big impact later on in life. So I could talk a lot about this. I'm going to keep it really short to that because I want to let the others jump in. But yes, uh, how do we address it? Ask us in like six months when we're, when we're a little bit further into GBHI maybe. Um, but we'll keep you posted. 
again, I would reflect what you're saying there. Um, I think one activity that we've done within Global Brain Health, so it's also a leadership training program, which I've always struggled with a little bit, because I think a lot of us often don't think of ourselves as leaders in that sense. Um, but an interesting activity was to keep asking what and to follow kind of a pathway backwards from the problem. So say that um, inequalities in brain health, um, what is causing that? You know, and like Francesca was saying, there could be a postcode lottery. Well, maybe there's uh, differences in schooling, differences in, you know. So um, I think there are lots of factors that play into that. And I think it's a case of tracking it back, going upstream and finding out if there's anything we can do and I just think so much is linked at the moment. So individuals who are at more risk from COVID will probably be the same individuals who originally were at higher uh, risk of having problems with brain health and other factors of health, you know. So obviously the heart and the brain are so interconnected and those same individuals will probably be at higher risk of stroke, heart attack, diabetes. So there's so many links and if we trace it back, it will be systemic and hopefully there will be things that can be done about it. But it's again, it's on that policy level and it's something that I would love to be able to fight for. Um, and I just need to learn a bit more about how that element of things works. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested. Yeah, Gronia, I'm interested. Uh, yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think yeah. as an artist, that's one thing that drew me to the GBHI. Um, it was like, how can... Um, how can I help others and how, how I can amplify the impact of, 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 of well-being with arts and health. And I know this interdisciplinary uh, gathering of people from all around the world, from geriatricians to policymakers. And for me, certainly, I wanted to see how, where do you start with engagement in policy? Where can you bring your knowledge and try to affect change, even if it's to sow a seed? So I think that's the unbelievable privilege I feel we've been given with the GBHI, thanks to Chuck Feeney to be given this it's an unbelievable opportunity of a year out to get together with people, even if it is on Zoom. For the last, I've had some most amazing and insightful conversations that I couldn't have had in my practice, in my work without the GBHI. So I certainly, I'm very excited to see how I can uh, contribute to, to, that, to that conversation uh, moving forward. And we'll certainly, we'll come back to you as, as they said, uh, in six months or a year and let you know how we've got on. Amazing, amazing. We, we were even saying in our preliminary chats with uh, our panel that it could be really fun to do another uh, iteration of the reading group uh, at the end of your guys' fellowship and, and maybe you could come back to us and hopefully we'll be through the worst of the pandemic at that stage. But it could be fascinating to come back and have this conversation again in, as you say, in six months' time and, and to check in. Um, I want to go on to um, another really great question, uh, quite a technical question, I think, from uh, Maria Bez. Um, and she asks, uh, have your methodologies as researchers and artists have uh, been influenced or changed as a result of working together? Um, and I think that's a really fascinating question. I mean, yeah, like what, what happens at like, Gronia, if you're in the lab, does, does, is, is that ever a context, Gronia, where you would actually be in a lab or Francesca and Sarah, would you guys have to have specific artistic or creative um, activities that you do as part of this collaboration? Or am I, am I going down the wrong path? We'd love to know. Um, it's a very interesting path and I look forward to going down it. We are at the very early stages because we haven't even got together in the same room. 
um, I suppose I have had an opportunity about five years ago to be involved in an evaluation of the work that I do. And for the first time as an artist, I was kind of sitting on a steering committee alongside a researcher, alongside um, a nurse practitioner and nurse management. And I got to see, I suppose, uh, how, how to bring a tender together and what kind of questions might be asked, I suppose, as the designer and understanding how the program worked. My function was in a non-voting capacity or collected evidence. But it was the first, I think that sowed the seed probably of where I am today because I was fascinated to see how we we could we could bring it together do you know what i mean um, and i look forward i know we have pilot projects to do as part of our work with the gbhi and hopefully that will in, you know involve us getting together in those kind of conversations and um, that's early next year so it's certainly um i think there's a lot to look forward to in that in that in the, in the idea of collaborating across amazing oh sorry just for me um yeah. in I suppose how it changes my way of working is realizing that. So it's different, I guess, if I'm just talking to my, you know, who I'm working with, my neuroscience team or whatever, we just talk back and forth. But if I know I have a meeting coming up with Grania, I suppose like you, one, you're not going to care the level of detail that I want to talk about in neuroscience. So already I can cut out so much and I have to reframe. And that's a really good thing. You know, I'm, I suppose I'm always thinking, in interactions with GBHI fellows, the so what question, like why would they care? Why Grania as a musician, why would she care about what I'm doing? Or what's the meaning in it or the value in it for her? And that's something that would be kind of much different than if I were just working in a neuroscience lab with no windows, like Sarah said. Yeah, and I again, I'd say for me, it's, um, I. I was very data focused when I was in those labs with no windows. Um, and then when I expanded out into working with the public and communication, I was no longer a researcher in many senses. I was actively out there doing things, talking to people and learning how to communicate what I had been doing. Um, but now I think, and again, it goes back to kind of how do we influence policy? How do we change things? And how do we prove that what we're doing is making a difference? I'm now coming into this notion of mixed methods and away from quantitative into qualitative, but again, pushing forward that evidence base to, to just kind of give that impetus to say, look, what we're doing matters. It's making a difference. And that's what I'm really excited about actually on this course. And again, the uh, speaker that we had today was speaking about how to measure well-being, um, and that's a, a very slippy thing to do again, and it, it gets quite quantitative, but not it doesn't apply to everyone. And was saying how it's a very personal thing and I think that's so important for proving and definitely when it comes to like community prescribing community groups and arts and science collaborations I think sometimes the biggest impact you're probably going to see is in this kind of subjective change in quality of life rather than necessarily something that can be measured so I'm quite excited to just kind of work with new people and learn a bit more about how we can make that evidence base together and yeah to yeah, get out of the lab. <laughs> it's all really exciting stuff. And I think there's this move in terms of different, um, this move in terms of evaluation in how we're evaluating people in a culturally responsive way that both gets, captures that quantitative data. So we have something that we can make our lovely graphs with and we have something we can translate that into. But it's also really important to capture the lived experiences and the stories that people want to share and how these interactions, how these experiences with people like you, Gronia, and Francesca, Sarah, all of you, how this actually impacts the quality of your life. And as you said, 
that's subjective, you know, and it's going to, what matters most is the story that they're willing to share and their experience of their interactions with you guys. So I think it's really interesting to bring that art science perspective to the new ways in which we look at evaluation too, and actually capturing this data. Um, I'll go to another question from our audience. So this is from Dalia Kovacek. Um, she says, hey, everybody. Uh, thank you for all. Uh, thank you all for your enthusiastic explanations about your way of work and sharing your experience with connecting art and science. As an artist at the beginning of my career, I'm very interested to know how did everybody start? How did everything start for you guys? How and when did you find out that you wanted to work in such groups and on projects like this? How did you find the opportunities to collaborate with those in other fields. I think a lot of artists and a lot of scientists have a similar question. So thanks, Dahlia. I'm happy to, I mean, I suppose I shared it at the very start. For me, um, sometimes in life you're given an opportunity uh, and you don't know where that will lead. And like I said, the seed was sown as a grad student. Um, I saw the direct impact that bringing music into a healthcare setting could have. And I kind of put that seed in my back pocket uh, when I came back to Ireland and I knew at some stage I'd come back to it. I wasn't sure when. And then a, an opportunity arose at an organization in Paris called Music et Santé, which is music and health. And I knew there was more I could do in healthcare setting for people besides just playing a performance, like playing at people. You, I could get a sense that there was more I could do and through training with them, um, just it, it transformed the work today. So we, I, we kind of play with people and for people, but it's never at people and it's always a choice. So I suppose it was that one seed that was sown and then that led to other opportunities to set up an organization. You know, I literally with one of the hospitals, the children's hospitals, how it all start. I'm a glass half full, like I said, I sent an email saying I would love to connect music in with, with your families and children. And I realized who doesn't get access to the arts? You know, when someone's ill and the whole family's affected, whether it's somebody in a nursing home and their carer, um, and there's a separation. So, that, you know, it's just how can I help? And that kind of sowed the seed there that led to other people and other people making requests and other settings. And then I became a trainer in this method. So I, there's people often ask, well, are you a music therapist? Because there's often a confusion, certainly with, with music, because that's what people know. They know somebody who goes in as a, a hobbyist, you know, to share some music and somebody who's a music therapist. But this realm in the, in the middle is quite new, even though we've been doing it for 10 years. But it's, 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 I think it, it adds a new, um, a new scope and space uh, within a setting. Um, I love working in, in, a, in a musical engagement that um, my role isn't to set an outcome, any clinical outcome, or, you know, in that kind of partnership but it's still, a, it's, it's an opportunity and a choice for people should they want to. So, you know, that it started off from a seed of an experience to then starting connecting, getting requests and to where I am now. So you just, you never know where, where, where something might lead you to. Yeah, so for me, it was a combination of a passion and a frustration kind of merged together. So um, I always was very passionate about the scientific academic work I was doing. Um, and I had a lot of friends who weren't in science and obviously my family had never been into that kind of thing either so I used to really enjoy just kind of going around in my head how to explain what I was doing and why I was doing it and what the greater the bigger importance of that was um, and at the same time I often found that if you're reading about science in like newspapers in any kind of media outlets I think it's so slanted and it's so slanted towards causes and cures and these big and it gives this 
unreal sense of what science is. I think Francesca was talking about, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, that we don't have geniuses, you know, we have individuals who are in the right place at the right time and have done a lot of work, but it's based on what others are doing as well. And I feel like a lot of the nitty gritty of what science really is and how it iterates and how it gets done just isn't expressed well in the media. So I ended up blogging and writing about the little guys and, you know, what we were doing and why we were doing it. And utterly loved that um, and I found this was my hardest thing I, I'm not great at speaking in front of people this was like the big hill I had to climb but I joined an organization called the British Science Organization here in Manchester and they're, they're all about reaching out to different populations we hosted events we did all sorts of amazing stuff with them and it slowly came um, and now you can't stop me <laughs> I'll just add something really short to that, I think. Um, so as a researcher, I guess I'm just very aware of my responsibility as a researcher. So if I'm bringing people in to do a study, it's really important that that goes somewhere. And I'm also aware that if I bring in carers for a study, they're not gonna read my scientific paper. A lot of the scientific community aren't gonna read my scientific paper. So, you know, I think, it has to go beyond that. And so that's where a lot of my motivation came from and continues to come from. So if I'm doing this work in order for it to be meaningful and impactful, I have to find creative ways to communicate with people outside of my little sphere, outside of Trinity. So I think that is always a motivator for me. And every time you do it, every time you step out and you try something new, it's so good and it's such a good feeling. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that would be my, that would be the only thing I would add to what Sarah of Grania said. Oh, thank you so much, everyone, um, for again such comprehensive answers to, to quite challenging questions. I think um, we might, I think we are unfortunately coming quite close to the end of our time together. Um, so I'm very sorry to everyone who, who, uh, whose uh, questions I, I didn't get to, we didn't actually get to, to ask, but we might end on quite a positive note, uh, a bit of a utopian uh, note, if you will, um, as we have a lovely question from Lewis uh, Howe. Um, and Lewis says, a lovely discussion all. If you could magically change one thing or in global or national policy to support better brain health equity, what would it be? <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a thinker. Uh, to put you, you can guys tell by our point. faces that none of us are prepared for that. <laughs> that was kind of a collective. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure, guys, no yeah. pressure. Wow. Or even we might retool it slightly if you guys need another minute to think about that. Like, you know, what, what would your sort of general advice be maybe to people um, in terms of brain health on an individual level or on a community level, particularly in light of the pandemic, maybe? Or you can go ahead and, and magically change uh, something in, in national policy. If I you want that moonshot, go for it. <laughs> I'm just thinking, um, for me, actually, it's a very interesting question because that's what we brought me to GBHI is how can I bring the artist to the equation, to that, to that health uh, you know, music, you know, plus a healthcare setting equals a natural equation. Like, why can't it be a natural thing, you know, to support the whole person in the environment? And it's like, um, there's a lot of policy out there. And I know some that, for instance, Healthy Ireland, it doesn't mention arts in it. It mentions everything else about our well-being, you know, physical well-being and nutrition. But the arts isn't brought to the equation. So certainly I would love to bring in national policy and even international, share my experience, but bring arts to that, to that table, let's say, to, to the, when the policy is, is, you know, reframed. That would be what I would love to see happen. 
I mean, for me, I think I would love to see more crossover between policymakers joining organizations and courses like this and developing that shared language because I think within our organization, a lot of us see where this is going. We see what's important. As Gronje was saying, we see how bigger impact the arts have on people's well-being, much broader than what you would see, you know, at a doctor's surgery. Um, but sometimes it feels like there's this brick wall in communication for policymakers that you don't know how to do that. And I never, I, I don't like assuming that that's their fault. I always assume that we live in quite different spheres and it's just understanding that sphere and what elements feed into it that we need to play to, to make sure that that gets there. So for me, I'd like to get more policymakers around our table and I'd like to understand them better and them to understand us better. That's definitely a cop out and I probably didn't answer the question properly. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's a tough one. <laughs> um, I think for me, the thing that comes to mind is, you know, be, being in GBHI and we have people from all over the world and seeing what dementia and brain health looks like in other countries. I think my answer is probably going to be something really simple like education or access to education. So, you know, just again seeing other people's perspectives and other countries where so many people don't have access to basic things like education um if 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 i could magically change something globally it would be probably something like that so something starting at a very young age so that people would have equal access to education and then if i can keep going other things that are good like recreational activities music let's get a grania for every you know for every setting let's get a sarah too with ppi this is great yes <laughs> easy uh, absolutely oh listen Unfortunately, our time is at an end, um, but I just want to say my sincere and heartfelt thanks to an incredible panel. Um, this has been one of my favourite conversations I think we've ever had in the reading group. Um, and I'm so grateful to all three of you for joining us and providing such interesting yet overlapping and distinct um, perspectives on the, these really like, big questions that we've been tackling here tonight. Um, thank you so much to our audience um, for your amazing questions um, and for continuing on the discussion and prompting um, in such a way. Um, and I suppose, yeah, I'll just, I'll hand over to Autumn now um, to close us uh, off for the evening. Thank you very much. Thank you everybody who joined us tonight. It was amazing to have these three uh, boss women, these three incredible experts in their field come in, share their experience, share their knowledge with us. It was incredible. Thank you to our audience. You guys ask, as always, uh, the most insightful, challenging, interesting questions. So thank you so much for being a part of, a, uh, a part of this. Um, and thank you for jamming with us. Uh, look forward to our next musical selection. Um, who knows what it'll be? It's Amelia's turn next time. So it'll, it'll be funky. It'll be good, whatever it is. In any case, from our quarantine caves to yours, stay safe, Stay curious, stay kind, and we'll see you next time. Thank you all so much. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.